Let us pray. Lord, now may the words of our mouth and the meditation of our hearts be found acceptable in your sight. For you, O Lord, are our rock and our salvation. And to you we say, Hosanna. In Jesus' name, amen. But well, we have sung Hosanna several times. We've said it a couple of times this morning. I'm just wondering if you know what you were saying. You know what the word Hosanna even means? Well, as we begin, I think it's going to be helpful if I give you a little lesson in Greek and Hebrew, uh, just to make sure that we all know what the New Testament means when it says in three different places, Hosanna to the Son of David, Hosanna in the highest, or simply Hosanna. Now, as many of you probably know, the New Testament was written in Greek. The Old Testament originally was written in Hebrew. And wherever the word Hosanna occurs in the New Testament, do you know what the Greek word is for that? It's Hosanna. All the English translators did was to use English letters, H-O-S-A-N-N-A, to make the sound of a Greek word. So you've already spoken Greek today in the service when you said Hosanna. But if you look at the Greek dictionary to find the meaning of that word Hosanna, you find that it is really not originally a Greek word at all. The writers of the New Testament did the same thing to a Hebrew word that our English translators did to the Greek. They used Greek letters to make the sound of a Hebrew phrase. I mean, so our English word Hosanna comes from a Greek word, Hosanna, which comes from a Hebrew phrase, and I'll teach you a little Hebrew, Hoshi Na'ah. Hoshi Na'ah. But you know, something happened to this phrase, Hoshi Na'ah, over the years. In the Psalm, back in, in Psalm 118, verse 25, it was a cry to God for help. Help, save me. Hoshi You know, if you fell into a pool and you couldn't swim, you'd shout, Hosanna! And all of the Hebrews would come and save you. Are you praying that God, God, help me? But something happened to that phrase, Hoshi over the years. In the psalm, it was immediately followed by, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. So over the years, Hoshi stopped being a cry for help, it instead became a shout of hope and exultation. It used to mean, save me, please. But gradually, it came to mean, salvation has finally come. It's the bubbling over of a person's heart that sees hope and joy and salvation, and they just plain simple can't keep it in. Now, today, we might see something really like that. We go, wow, cool. But the people back then would go, Hosanna. I mean, salvation has come. This is really neat. So Hosanna means a variety of things. It means hooray for salvation. It's coming. It's here. Hosanna to the son of David means the son of David is our salvation. Hooray for the king. Salvation belongs to the king. Hosanna in the highest. That just means let all of the angels in heaven join the song of praise. Salvation, salvation. Let the highest heavens sing the song. 
Now, with that little Greek and Hebrew introduction, let's get on with the text. And it, I'm, today, it's not what you see on the back of your bulletin, but I'm going back to the actual story of Palm Sunday. If you've got your Bibles, it's in Luke chapter 19, and I'm going to be at verse 29 to 31. It says, as he, that's Jesus, approached Bethphage and Bethany at the hill called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever written. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Tell him, the Lord needs it. When I read that story, I wonder how, how that would work at ranches around here. <laughs> if you walked up and said, that horse out there, uh, the Lord needs it. They'd probably go, yeah, sure. You know, the two disciples probably, I would think they must have wondered about what Jesus told them to do because none of the gospel accounts ever mentioned him riding any animal to get from one place to another. I mean, he must have walked hundreds and hundreds of miles up and down this land that we call the Holy Land, but there is no mention of him ever riding except in a boat to cross the Sea of Galilee. But now he gives this rather unusual command to go into a village, to get a colt that had never been ridden before, an unbroken colt, and to bring it to him. He even tells them the exact words they are to, to use should anybody question them. The Lord needs it. Now, I wonder, was this prearranged? I mean, did the owners know what Jesus was going to do? Well, it's obvious that Jesus knew what he was going to face in Jerusalem. His decision to go to Jerusalem must have been one of the most difficult that he ever faced. And on top of that, to ride into the city of Jerusalem during Passover on a colt, rather than to walk into it as he had often done before, must have been an even more difficult decision, because this was truly a public declaration that he was a king. Now, if you can keep your finger in one place, you can go back to the Old Testament and find the book of Zechariah or read it up there. But in Zechariah 9, 9, here is one of the 330-some prophecies of the coming Messiah. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Now, this may not mean much to you unless you study a little bit about what's going on in the Bible times. In times of war, during the days of Jesus, conquerors, if you think about King David, conquerors would ride chariots or these big prancing stallions. But in times of peace, the king would always ride back into the town on a colt. So for Jesus to ride back into Jerusalem upon a colt is to declare himself to be what? The king of Peace, the Prince of Peace. Now, of course, this was also the beginning of the eight-day Passover festival when the Jews remembered God's deliverance of their ancestors from Egyptian slavery. So, obviously, Jesus was not the only one coming to Jerusalem that day. I mean, Pontius Pilate had already entered Jerusalem with a full complement of battle-hardened soldiers ready and willing to suppress any attempted revolt against Roman rule. Herod Antipas, the tetrarch, or the king or the ruler, of Galilee and Perea, uh, the one who had imprisoned and then beheaded John the Baptist, had already arrived, probably with great pomp and ceremony, undoubtedly occupying the palace of his late father, Herod the Great. 
So such power and pageantry that week on this Holy Sunday, this Palm Sunday. And here comes Jesus fulfilling the prophecy of Zechariah. And you can bet that there were probably people there that day who put two and two together. But the question is, how would people respond to that? Would they recognize that his kingdom is not of this world? Would they treat it as a spiritual kingdom, that he was talking about being a spiritual king? Well, I would say, fat chance. Because he had been teaching them that for over three years, and they still had not even learned that lesson. I'm sure that there would have been some people who saw him riding in that day, riding on that colt, people waving these palm branches, throwing their coats on the ground, would have laughed at him. They would have been amused. I mean, what Jesus was doing after all, it's kind of a ridiculous picture when you stop and think about it. It's a carpenter riding on a donkey claiming to be a king. I mean, some people would say, this guy's a raven lunatic. I mean, he's living in a world of fantasy. This guy thinks he's a king. Uh, some of them probably would greet him with anger, upset because they would interpret the, his riding into the city on a donkey as arrogance and blasphemy against God. They put two and two together. Hold it. He's, he says he's the fulfillment of an old testament. He's saying he's the Messiah. That's blasphemy. <laughs> of course, many people would have hailed him with joy. They thought he was an earthly king come to reestablish the throne of David. I mean, they were ready and eager to put a crown on his head. But little did they know that the crown that would be placed on Jesus' head in just a few days was a crown of thorns and not a crown of gold. Now, among the crowd that day probably were some people that Jesus had healed. Some may have been among the thousands of people that he had fed in the feeding of the 5,000. I mean, many more had probably seen his miracles. Uh, many listened to him as Scripture says he spoke with authority. Uh, they had listened and their lives had been changed. Now, Jesus knew all of this, and he also knew that just over the horizon was the cross, kind of looming like a monster, ready to consume him. <clears throat> in Luke 9:51, it tells us in spite of it, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He set his face toward Jerusalem because he knew he was called there to die. So now you picture Jesus. He is riding toward the city gate of Jerusalem. And as he does, the crowds get bigger and bigger and bigger. It's Passover, and pilgrims are gathering from far and near for this greatest of Jewish holidays. And even before Jesus arrives, the news begins to spread that this Jesus is the guy who raised Lazarus from the dead. And oh, by the way, what did the Old Testament say about Lazarus that they wanted to kill Jesus then? The Old Testament says that when the Messiah comes, the dead would rise on the Mount of Olives. And where is Bethany, where Lazarus was raised? The Mount of Olives. But you can probably imagine the excitement there. You probably would have loved to be in that crowd. I mean, have you heard the good news? I mean, Lazarus died. He was buried in the tomb so long that his body actually started to decay. But this teacher guy, this guy Jesus from Nazareth... Uh, came and he just said, Lazarus, come forth. And guess what? Lazarus came forth. I saw him. I saw them unwind the bandages around him. And he actually walked and breathed and lived and ate again. I mean, surely only the Messiah could do that. 
And you could probably hear that message being passed from one person to another in this big crowd until finally when Jesus was about ready to enter the city, great crowds had collected on both sides of the road. They had cut their palm branches and were already shouting, Hosanna to the king. I mean, the excitement probably rippled throughout the big city of Jerusalem. And Jesus looked over that waiting audience and he must have seen a lot of different expressions. Kind of like a pastor looking out of the congregation, you see a lot of different expressions. <laughs> he looked out. Maybe, maybe Bartimaeus was there, the guy who had received sight, no longer in his, his, in his beggar's rags. I mean, maybe Zacchaeus was in the crowd, climbing a little tree. He paid back his debt, he'd made peace with God. I mean, maybe the ten lepers were there. Uh, their skin had been cleansed, and so they were coming to celebrate Passover again. Or maybe Jairus' daughter was in that crowd, you know, uh, back to life again. Or maybe Lazarus and Mary and Martha and Mary Magdalene were all there because, you know, their love for him in their hearts was because this is a man who had taught them and molded them and changed them. But, you know, there are also a bunch of cranky faces in that crowd. It's always that way. Sinister faces, people with those squinty eyes, waiting for him to say something wrong or do something wrong. I mean, the Sadducees and the Pharisees were there. I mean, they were supposed to be the keepers of the law. They're the ones who made sure that the church was taken care of just so. They were the spiritual leaders. But Jesus had gained so much popularity that they felt threatened. So full of jealousy, they sat there and they just looked at Jesus and said, go ahead, make our day, do something wrong, say something wrong. And off to the side, you would have seen the Romans. They were there. They were fearing some sort of a revolt and they were watching for any signs of rebellion, ready and waiting to crush any uprising. Now, Jesus realized as he heard these hosannas that soon many of these sinister voices would drown out these voices of love and be crying out, crucify him. Or maybe just standing off on the side and not saying anything at all. But now you can picture Jesus coming down that hill, descending from the Mount of Olives. And across the brook and toward the gate, the crowd swinging around him. Have you ever wondered what the disciples were thinking at that time? I always kind of thought Judas was probably ecstatic. I think he was basking in the reflected glory because I think Judas, more than any of the other disciples, wanted an honest-to-goodness earthly king. I picture Peter <laughs> strut like a peacock, thinking, man, this is really great. But he probably had his hand on his little fishing sword just in case something went wrong. Maybe he even thought to himself, you know, look at the size of this crowd. Maybe it was a good idea to give up fishing. Maybe Thomas was walking along, skeptical, wondering what was going to go wrong next. I picture Andrew being a little bit overwhelmed because, after all, he, he was used to bringing people to Jesus one at a time in small groups. This crowd probably, he probably was an introvert, probably didn't like this. Or what about James and John? Uh, do you suppose they were thinking, wow, as soon as Jesus gets crowned king, once we get inside here, we're going to be on his right hand and his left hand. We're going to have positions of authority. Ain't mama going to be happy? 
But, you know, they were all there. Smiling faces and the sinister faces. There were the anxious disciples. Crowds trampling almost one on top of the other. When suddenly the parade stopped. The entire procession ground to a halt. You ever been in traffic like that when you come to the Metroplex or anyplace else? You're just cruising along and all of a sudden you stop dead. One car stops, another car stops, kind of like a chain reaction. And I can almost picture the people who are walking just kind of bumping into What's going on? What's the holdup? But the people that were closest to Jesus could see and they realized that it was he who stopped the parade. And then they began to see Jesus' body kind of shake. And maybe at first they thought he was laughing. Because laughter would seem like a pretty natural thing to do when everybody's cheering for you. But then they saw Jesus' face. And they saw absolutely no evidence of laughter. Rather, they saw sorrow and they saw tears streaming down his face. He was not laughing. He was crying. Scripture tells us that Jesus reacted emotionally many times from difficult scenes before. When he saw poor people, when he saw hungry people, when he saw sinning people, when he saw the sick, the scriptures repeatedly say that Jesus had compassion on people, but only two times does it ever say that Jesus cried. We talked about one of them last Sunday. One was at that grave of Lazarus, and this is the only other time in the Bible it's recorded that Jesus cried. Now, the question is, why was he crying? If you want to connect Old Testament and New Testament again, go back to David. When David was chased out of Jerusalem by his son Absalom, it says that David cried leaving Jerusalem. And here in the New Testament, the son of David cries coming into Jerusalem. He sees the mixture of faces and the masses of humanity crowding there, and he realized the emptiness in their lives. They had not heard the message of peace. They didn't understand the purpose of his coming. Here in Luke 19, it says, As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and your children within the walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Jesus was crying because these people had eyes, but they couldn't see. They had ears, but they didn't hear. They they missed the whole point of God's message. And guess what? I think there are countless people who park their posteriors in the pew every Sunday in churches across this world who still have not quite caught on to who Jesus really is. A man of peace. And you know something? The fact that they waved palm branches showed that they really didn't understand. you know that? Because that's exactly what their great-grandparents had done when the Maccabees overthrew the Syrian oppressors and reestablished worship back in the temple. And by waving palm branches, what they were saying is they expected Jesus to be another warlord, another general of the armies, one who would lead them to overthrow the Romans and then punish all of their enemies. They were saying that they were about ready to pick up their swords and shields to go to war if Jesus would just get up on a bigger horse and lead them into battle. But Jesus says in Matthew 5, I did not come for that purpose. 
I came to show you a more excellent way. To show you the way of love. To love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. If someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go with him two miles, go with him two miles. Go with him, you say one mile, go with him two miles. See, the people who listened to him must have thought, I got to tell you something, Jesus, those are beautiful words. But surely you don't expect us to love Rome. I mean, only a lunatic would tell us to love Rome. But, you know, friends, that's exactly what Jesus was saying. He said, Rome with her mighty armies has seen the power of the sword, but Rome has never seen the power of love. Love them into submission. Show them love. See, the nation of Israel had the opportunity to show Rome something new and different, something they'd never seen before. But the people did not understand Jesus, and because they completely misunderstood his mission, Jesus sat on that donkey outside of Jerusalem, and he wept over them because the opportunity had been taken away, and they would never have this opportunity again. These were God's people. These were God's chosen people. God had loved them. He had led them out of Egypt, across the wilderness, into the promised land, but they did not understand the Messiah when he walked right in the midst of them. And because of that, Jesus wept. Man, what a contrast. You're sitting on a beast of burden. You would see that towering temple of God silhouetted against the sky on one of the tallest hills in Jerusalem. But beyond that, In the years ahead, Jesus also sees this vision that I read to you before. The armies of Titus surrounding the holy city of Jerusalem. He sees temple stones being taken down, the city leveled. He sees bodies in the street. He sees blood running in the gutters. He sees hundreds of thousands of people who are weeping and crying because they're starving to death while Titus waits for Jerusalem to surrender. And all of that happens. Why? Because they did not recognize the Messiah when he came. I mean, how different life could have been. How different the entire history of Israel could have been if they had only recognized the one who was in their midst riding on a colt. See, both Matthew and Luke tell us that sometime earlier, Jesus had been outside the city too, probably when he was at Mary and Martha and Lazarus' place, and he looked at that city in the distance, and he had cried out, both Matthew and Luke, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, How often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. You know, every time you preach a sermon, there's always a point where you get to where it's kind of like, nice sermon, but so what? Here's the so what. Today, 2014, Palm Sunday, Like the city of Jerusalem, we find ourselves in the presence of Jesus one more time. It's part of his promise. Where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in the midst of them. It's not because this building has any special significance, but he says he's where his people are. You are going to gain the most intimate touch of Jesus you can ever receive in the sacrament. I always think about the sacrament and what it really means beyond, well, it's just something we do on every other Sunday and on special days. You know, when Jesus healed people, he touched people. Can you even picture a more intimate touch of Jesus than to receive his very body and blood? 
and to realize that that brings healing? What kind of healing, you ask? I don't know. Maybe some of you need healing from sin. Maybe some of you need healing from stiff necks. By that, I don't just mean you slept wrong last night. Maybe some of you need healing from jealous spirits. Maybe some of you need healing of your body. I'm not sure what you need. But if Jesus were here today, I wonder what he would find when he looks. Does he see people that are so busy doing stuff that they never bother to consider things of eternal importance? Does he see people who truly recognize Jesus as the Messiah, God's Son sent from heaven into the flesh to suffer and redeem his people? Does he find people who are merely fans of Jesus, or does he find people who are his true followers? One of the best books I've read this last year was called Not a Fan. I'd commend you to read that sometime if you want to. I'll be honest with you. I got done with it. I said, yeah, I'm not a fan of Jesus either. I'm a follower. There's a big difference between being a fan of Jesus and a follower. See, when Jesus turns and looks into our lives, and when I say our, I'm talking about you individually, but I'm also talking about myself. I mean, I can't preach a sermon without it also speaking to me. But when God turns and looks into my life, when he turns and looks into your life, I wonder, will he weep once again because of what he sees? Or will he have that joy that passes all understanding as we respond to his outstretched arms and hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant, enter the joy of your Lord. We probably will sing or say Hosanna at least once more today. I would ask that when you sing Hosanna, when you say Hosanna, when you see it written someplace in these next week, make it personal. Make it your praise. Make it your confidence. The son of David has come. The Messiah has come. Salvation belongs to our God and to the son. Hosanna. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. May God grant us that joy and that peace in his name. Amen.